Let's take our Bibles now and turn to John chapter 5 this morning. John chapter 5, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 16. The uh, account of Jesus meeting the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. The title of the message this morning, Wilt Thou Be Made Whole? That's a question that Jesus asked this man. The miracle of this uh, pool at Bethesda is only recorded here in the Gospel of John. And it's here so that we can know that God is gracious. Grace is unmerited or undeserved favor. I'm so thankful for God's grace. It was in our scripture reading for this morning as well. We don't know if this paralyzed man's uh, physical healing necessarily meant that he was converted, that he was saved. The text doesn't give us any indication that he had come to believe on Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. So here's an amazing thing. Jesus talked about it on the Sermon on the Mount. God makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. God is gracious to everyone, but not all turn to him in faith and trust him as their personal savior. A physical healing in the Bible does not always mean that the person was spiritually healed as well. We saw that in the healing of the ten lepers a few weeks ago, when the only one who was a Samaritan turned back and glorified God and fell on his face, worshiping and thanking him. That was proof of what had taken place in his heart, a spiritual conversion. But here we don't have that kind of evidence in the language or in the, uh, in the text itself. There are many today who enjoy being around Christians. I think Sunday is a, is a nice time to go to church and, and sing the songs and to be around good people. Uh, God, again, sends the sunshine and the rain on the just and the unjust. But it takes a turning. It takes a, a decision that you make in your heart to come to Christ and trust him as your savior. Uh, a lot of people enjoy God's blessings. And even some recognize these are from God and he should be praised. But when it comes to that personal, I'm, I'm a sinner, I'm lost, I need to trust Christ as my savior, they don't make that step. When a person is saved, God makes him righteous. He's justified. Let me just read a passage in Romans chapter 3, a very familiar verse to start that passage, verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then he talks about being justified. That is, justification is, is, is the fact that God's law has been satisfied. That Jesus paid our penalty that we've received that gift of eternal life. So let me read on, verse 24. Being justified freely by his grace, how, is that, how does that happen? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has sent forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that is Christ's righteousness, that he might be just, that Christ might be just, and the justifier of them which believe in Jesus. He will justify you if you come and believe and put your faith in what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for your sin. 
So again, the passage here today focuses on the grace of God and the physical healing of a man who is paralyzed. Jesus, I believe, is asking each of us today, wilt thou be made whole? And so if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, I hope you'll hear his, his call to come to him, to trust him and be saved. Let's look at the setting, first of all, in the first four verses of John chapter 5. The event. Uh, verse 1 says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. There were three feasts called pilgrim feasts, that is where the Jewish men would travel to Jerusalem, and they were required to be there. The law says in Deuteronomy 16, 16, three times in a year shall all thy males appear before the Lord uh, in the place where he shall choose in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, in the Feast of Weeks, in the Feast of Tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty. That is, worshipers always bring something to worship the Lord with. And John doesn't specify which feast this was. He's simply giving us a reason that Jesus was at Jerusalem in this at this time. This would have been the second year of Christ's public ministry. He had a public ministry, we believe, three years, and they're all marked by his trips to Jerusalem to the, the Feast of Passover. So the next year, at that Passover, he would be going to the cross. When Jesus went up to Jerusalem, again, he's leaving from Galilee, which is to the north, but topographically, he's going up the mountain, up to Jerusalem. When he was doing that, he was showing his observance of the Old Testament law, which, by the way, he had written. <laughs> and Jesus explained in the Sermon on the Mount the importance of the Old Testament law. He said, think not that I am come to destroy the law and the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill now, he'll be accused of destroying the law or going against the law later on in this passage. But here he says, in Matthew, I've come to fulfill the law. I like to think of it as a, as a glass, and when you fill it to the, to the very brim, in fact, you can always put just a few more drops than you'd ever expect, and you get that, uh, that uh, sphere that goes above the rim, and, and, and you think... If I put one more drop in, it, the glass is going to spill. It's not going to hold it. Jesus fulfilled the law. That law that none of us could, could keep, Jesus filled it all. There's nothing else that needs to be done, nothing else that you can do to fulfill the Old Testament law. Jesus did that. And so here he has respect to the law. Notice the place in verse 2. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called the, in the Hebrew tongue, Bethesda having five porches. Now it's located, it says, near the sheep market. That pool is uh, near the, the north gate of the city of, of the temple um, where the, the sheep market would be, or the sheep gate. The name, there are different suggestions as to why this pool was named Bethesda. Some say that it means the house of porches, some say the house of olives, some uh, use the word hesed. Beth is he, uh, the house, but Hesed would be his mercy, and so a house of mercy. Now, whatever it is, we see that God's mercy takes place on this occasion, or is, is seen, is shown to this man. The description of this place, having five porches, and I always thought about that and was confused. How can a pool have five porches unless it's shaped like a pentagon or something? For a long time, critics claimed that John was written later by someone who didn't know anything about Jerusalem because no other Jewish writer had made any reference to this particular pool. 
But lo and behold, in 1988, or 1888, some repairs were being done to St. Anne's Church that was built in the fourth century. And during the repairs, they, they discovered this very pool, complete with five arches painted with frescoes of the miracle of Christ recorded in this chapter, John 5. In our trip to Israel, our, our travelers sang in that St. Anne's Church, we sang Amazing Grace, and the acoustics made us sound like a huge choir. We really sounded good. Not good enough to join the church choir back home. But. That was in 1888 that they discovered that. Well, in 1952, in a cave of Qumran, a copper scroll was discovered that mentions Bethesda. The scroll indicates that there was a porch in the middle that separated a larger pool from a smaller one. And so you have this uh, each porch covered with a, a roof. It was supported by pillars. And so we have five porches. Amazing, isn't it? God's word is always true. Each of these porches could have held large numbers of people. It's not surprising that when they found out how large a number of people it, it held, we, we look back and we look ahead to verse 3 now, in these lay a great multitude. Well, obviously it had to be a, a big place because the Bible said it held a great multitude. Notice the kind of people that were there. A great multitude of impotent folk. The word impotent means, is the Greek word astheneo. It means to be feebled, to be sick, to be diseased, to be weak. The three conditions of the ones at the pool are specifically named. The blind, unable to see. The halt, unable to walk, lame or crippled. And the withered, unable to to do what the body used to do or was designed to do, shrunken or atrophied limbs, hands that couldn't grasp, arms that couldn't be lifted, legs that couldn't support the body's weight. What a picture here of man's spiritual condition. We're all helpless. We're all totally unable to save ourselves spiritually. The Bible says that all of our Righteousnesses are as filthy rags. That's Isaiah 64, 6. And I didn't mispronounce the word righteousness. It is plural there. Everything you do that's good, whether collectively, all of them, or individually, the righteousnesses, none of those will accomplish your, your salvation. In fact, God looks at them and said, those are all like filthy rags, all of our goodness, each of them. Without grace, the grace of God, we're dead in our trespasses and in our sins. We have no strength. We have no ability to save ourselves. The only way we can be made alive is with the quickening power of God. In Ephesians 2.1, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Our only hope is found in the grace of God and in the God of grace. We find in verse, uh, the second half of verse 3 and verse 4 something that is a scribe's explanation of why people came to the pool at Bethesda. Waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then, first after the troubling of the water, stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. 
The pool was apparently fed by some hot mineral springs that would be occasionally, uh, the gases from beneath the earth would be forced through this water, the surface, and it caused the water to, to boil or to churn. The walls of the pools at Bethesda have been discolored by a red oxide, which seems to indicate that there were rich iron and mineral deposits there. Hot mineral springs have historically been considered healthy to soak in and even to drink. Iron supplements are often used to treat fatigue and anemia. Well, the local explanation in Jerusalem as to why the the mineral pool would churn and be troubled was that an angel came down. An angel was responsible for doing this, and uh, he would stir the water. Interestingly, there had not been any healings recorded at the pool of Bethesda until this one in John chapter 5. Let's look at the miracle in verses 5 through 9. We see the man's problem in verse 5. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity 30 and 8 years. Here's a specific individual that Jesus came. He knew he was there and he came in this divine appointment to heal him. A certain man. He, a specific person, an individual. We don't question the ways that God works with certain people and certain times. It's just that there is that time when God will come to a person and, and seem to show his grace to them and expect a response. God intervenes at those times when we are in our greatest needs. This man had been paralyzed for 38 years. We don't know how old he was, but he had been paralyzed for that long. He had to be brought to the pool by someone else. And I can imagine that every day they would bring him. People would see them come. He couldn't get anywhere by himself. And the fact that he'd been an invalid for 38 years would, would mean that everybody knew about his condition. Maybe he was laid out in the same place at the poolside every year. Maybe he had his favorite spot. But others saw this routine. And, and that shows that this, this miracle, after it's performed... Would, would be verified. There would be witnesses, testimonies. Yes, I've, I've known him for 38 years. He's never been able to do anything. But that day Jesus asked the question, Wilt thou be made whole? The miracle is genuine. And when Christ performs a miracle, it is undeniable. We don't know the man's exact malady. We're only told that he's unable to move himself from place to place. He was powerless, impotent. And God chose to show grace to him. Why? To show us that man does not merit grace. It's undeserved. This man wasn't looking for Jesus. Jesus was looking for him. God wants us to come to him in our weakness. He wants to show us that he's the only one who can help us. Verse 6 shows us the Savior's attentiveness or attention to him. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? There's our question. Notice what Jesus did. He saw the man lying there. Jesus sees. He sees what you're going through. He sees everyone's need. And the fact that he sees shows that he, he cares. He's concerned. It says that he knew the extent of this man's condition. Not only does Jesus see you, he knows. He knows more than you do about what you're going through because he can see tomorrow. He asked, wilt thou be made whole? 
Now, why did Jesus ask that question? Isn't it obvious? <laughs> He's lying there with all the others who are in various stages of physical need, and this is the place where people came hoping to get well. Maybe Jesus asked it to get the man to recognize his own weakness, his own need, to admit that he needed help. Maybe he wanted to break his concentration from that thing that he thought would be his answer, his solution to his, his, his paralyzation. And Jesus may have been saying, stop looking at the pool and start looking to me. Jesus asked, wilt thou be made whole? He asks you that. Do you need help from your hopeless condition? Well, you might say right now, you know, I've, I've been trying to work through this and I think I've got a solution. I'm, I'm setting up a new budget. Uh, I'm going to get through this. It's going to help me. Right now I'm working on my self-image. I'm learning how to feel better about myself. I'm reading books. Uh, I'm, uh, right now I'm trying to be a better parent and so I'm reading books about parenting. Uh, we often look to the wrong places for the help that we really need. And Jesus sees, and he asks, wilt thou be made whole? And we've got to set aside all those other things and look to him. It seems as though Jesus was able to awaken this man's will when he asks, wilt thou be made whole? We would expect him to cry out, yes, that's exactly what I need. That's exactly what I want. But years of living with this condition probably made him doubt. Oh, you don't really understand how bad I've got it. After 38 years of suffering, he may have given up on all of his hope. The man's answer, I have no man. Verse 7, the impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. I, I can't get to the water myself. And if I, if I even have help, once I get there, it's too crowded. Someone else steps in before me. I wonder how many people today have used the excuses that others uh, are in their way. Uh, I, I would be open to God's grace, but I'm just being realistic. It, yeah, it's really, this is impossible. I, I can't break this sinful habit. I've tried before. I, I can't turn my life around. It's hopeless. He said, I have no one to help me. Somebody today might use that same excuse. I've been dis disappointed by so many people. I just can't trust anyone anymore. I've tried going to different churches. Uh, you don't know my wife or my husband. They're, they're really the ones who are in the way. Maybe my parents... Uh, they're keeping me from following Christ. And they keep making excuses for not coming to Jesus Christ who offers his grace. Notice his invitation, verse 8. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. What simple instructions. You know, the gospel is, is a very simple plan of salvation. And yet people won't respond to it. Rise, take up thy bed and walk. Jesus will never ask you to do something that he will not, by his grace, help you to do. Rise, take up thy bed and walk. In verse 9, we see the miracle. Immediately, the man was made whole. He took up his bed and walked, and on the same day was the Sabbath. He was healed. Notice the healing was immediate. 
There were no remedial steps, no therapy that he had to go through. The healing was thorough. The man was made whole. He wasn't partially healed. He didn't walk with a limp for a few days until he got his strength in the limbs. He was completely healed. He obeyed. He took up his bed. He walked. I mentioned at the beginning that physical healing in the Bible does not always mean that there's spiritual salvation. Let me just quote a couple men on this text. Leon Morris writes, This healing differs from many others in that not only is there no mention of faith on the part of the man, but there seems no room for it. The man didn't even know Jesus' name, verse 13. Moreover, right up until Jesus uttered the critical words, his thoughts were centered on healing through getting into the pool, verse 7. We must feel that while faith was commonly the prerequisite for healing, it was not absolutely necessary. Jesus is not limited by man as he works the works of God. Tenney says the healing was not a response to a request, nor did it presuppose an expression of faith on the part of the man. Jesus asked him to do the impossible, to stand on his feet, pick up his bedroll, and go his way. Renewed by the miraculous influx of new power, the man responded at once and did so. Jesus supplied even the will to be cured. <laughs> As often takes place when Jesus works miracles, someone is going to be against it. And there is opposition. There's criticism. We see it at the very end of verse 9. And on the same day was the Sabbath. And so we come to the last point in verses 10 through 16, the reaction of the Jews. The Jews, therefore, said unto him that was cured, It is the Sabbath day. It is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. He answered them, He that made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. Then asked they him, What man is it that said unto thee, Take up thy bed and walk? And he that was healed wist not, knew not who it was, for Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple and saith unto him, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which made him whole, which had made him whole. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. The first accusation that these religious leaders leveled against Jesus was that he had broken the Sabbath laws. The more critical point is made later by Jesus that he is God, and they will accuse him of that as well. That's the issue that's most important. Who is Jesus? He really is God. He's the Lord of the Sabbath, according to Matthew 12, 8. That's what brings the religious crowd to their feet in that anger. And it's very clear. We won't get to the... well. Let's go ahead and read the verses 17 and 18. They're not in our text, but notice what happens. But Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because not only had broken the Sabbath, but he also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. They understood that when Jesus said, God is my father, he was claiming deity. He was saying, I am God. And so the questions by the Jews... They asked the man, 
about this work that he had. You rolled up your cot. We can't believe you did that. You moved it. You took it somewhere. By their traditions, again, not by the Old Testament law, but by their traditions, a man who intentionally carried anything from public to private, a public place to a private place, was to be killed by stoning. Now again, we talked about this last week, that the Mishnah was the hedge about the law. And the rabbinical writing of the Mishnah, it has 39 rules about working on the Sabbath. The 39th rule, don't carry anything on the Sabbath. Jesus said in Mark 2.27 that the Sabbath was made for man. Jesus made it for man so that we would rest, so that we would worship God. It was for man's benefit, not for his punishment. Listen to the answer that the man gave. The one who healed me told me to carry it. He didn't know who Jesus was, but he didn't want to be stoned for something that someone else had done for him. So he put the blame on the one who healed him rather than risk being in violation of those Jewish laws. Jesus has some clarifications. He said more to him. He found the man. He's now able to walk. He's in the area of the temple. And Jesus was concerned about where this man was spiritually. Ye are whole. And he says, sin no more. Some people say, was this... Uh, disease, this paralysis, as a result of his own individual sin, something he did? We don't know. The text doesn't say that. D.A. Carson reminds us that all sickness is a result of sin, but not necessarily of some specific individual sin. Jesus said, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. So he had sinned. And Jesus is warning him not to keep sinning or something worse would happen. And you ask yourself, what could be worse than living 38 years paralyzed? And everybody agrees that studies this passage. What is worse is dying without Christ. Being healed physically but not being saved spiritually. The Lord's enemies make some determinations. The man went back to the Jews, gave the answer in verse 15. The story ends with the Jews resolving to punish Christ. Therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him. Why? Because he healed on the Sabbath. And that marks a turning point in the ministry of Christ. Up until now, everybody's been, been very pleased. There are miracles. There is great teaching and, and no opposition. But now he healed a man on the Sabbath. He's broken their laws that protected that Sabbath. And so he's made enemies, and those enemies are going to pursue him all the way to his death. And what have we seen in this text? God is gracious. This man wasn't looking for salvation, for healing. He shows unmerited, undeserved favor, and he does that to all mankind. But God's grace and blessings don't always bring salvation. There is what is called a common grace, a grace that God shows to all of his creation. We know this lame man was made whole, but we don't know if he only looked to Christ as a healer or if he had trusted Christ as a savior. The answer is not in the passage. But I think the application is very clear. There are a lot of people who, to whom God has been very gracious, 
He's given them good health. He's given them a good life. He's provided for their needs. He's let the rain fall when they need the rain and the sunshine when they need that. He's been very gracious. And yet, a person hasn't responded to his grace. God may have done some wonderful things in your life for your benefit. You may have been shown kindness, favor that you don't deserve. But that doesn't mean your sins are forgiven. You have to come. You have to repent of your sin and trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you've never come to a place where if you've confessed that Jesus Christ is God, that he died on the cross for your sin, that you need to make him your Savior, you need to be saved today. He will do more than heal and meet your physical needs. He'll forgive your sin. Don't presume on his grace. He may have spared your life. I've talked to people and they say, well, I, I should have died, but I didn't. And so, am I saved? Well, no, God may have give, been giving you some more time so that you can trust him as your savior. But we're only saved by calling on Christ. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's giving you an opportunity to repent, to accept Christ as your savior. Let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this account in scripture. We're thankful for the mercy and the grace that God showed to this paralyzed man. And I pray that there won't be people today who have recognized and benefited by your grace, but have never responded to it in faith. The Bible says, by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And I pray that if there's one here today is trusting anything else other than the shed blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, that today will be the day they come to you, repent of sin, accept you as Savior, and crown you as King of their life. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.